Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby. We are thankful that you have joined us today. This is the work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We're located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. You can reach us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, That You May Grow Thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer, and I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. I'm Jacob Taylor, one of the evangelists. I'm Ross Oldenkamp, also an evangelist. And we'll begin our discussion today of one of the most incredible events, or one of the most incredible acts of Jesus, as he teaches us so very, very much, the washing of the apostles' feet, found in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart from the, this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during, and during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas, of, of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had handed all things over to him, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper and laid his outer garments aside. He took a towel and tied it around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began washing the disciples' feet and wiping them with the towel, which he had tied around himself. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, you are washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not realize right now, but you will understand later. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no place with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Otherwise he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. It was for this reason that he said, Not all of you are clean. Then when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are correct, for so I am. So if I, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example, so that you would do just as I did for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I am not speaking about all of you. I know the ones whom I have chosen. But this is happening so that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on I am telling you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who receives anyone I send receives me. The one who receives me receives him who sent me. Considering this event in light of the apostles' contention among themselves, this contention probably occurred when they were seating themselves for the feast, hence John says, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus had responded to their contention, teaching them that true greatness is seen in service. Now, he took the opportunity to teach them a stunning object lesson. We see in verse 1 that Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father. When we think about it, the absolute knowledge of Jesus that his death was near makes what he was about to undergo an overwhelming revelation 
of his true love and greatness. He was about to depart from this world. He was about to undergo tremendous pain and suffering. But he must leave his apostles in the world where they are going to have to continue on and proclaim his message to the world. They would need his love and help. Foreknowledge intensified his suffering, but their need took precedence in his heart. He had loved them all along. Now Jesus would demonstrate his love for them in the sacrifice of his life on the cross. Certainly the mention of Judas's treachery in verse 2 simply enhances the glory of what Jesus was about to do as he stooped to wash the feet even of the very one he knew was in the process of betraying him. Jesus rose from the supper, girded himself with a towel, and took a pitcher of water and a basin. Stooping down, he poured the water from the pitcher over the feet of his apostles, the water running down into the basin, and he wiped them with a towel. This was a chore normally reserved for the lowliest of household servants. You know, sometimes it's asked, um, what would you do if you knew you had one day to live? You know, and... Uh, I doubt that uh, washing feet would be very high on the list. Well, Jesus shows us uh, he's not just a teacher uh, in word, but in deed also. Uh, you could ne- no one could ever say that he didn't live what he preached. Uh, there's so much here. Uh, I'm, I'm impressed by his everything that the text says that Jesus knew. I think when you study this text from the standpoint of the things that Jesus knew, if you just compile those things, you knew that it was soon time to depart this world. He knew that the Father had given all things to his hand. Later, in chapter 16, he knew, knowing that his disciples were going to uh, betray or, or flee from him. He knew this and that, and still he acted this way towards his disciples the fact that Judas was there also, that he washed Judas's feet, gives us a great example of, uh, of forbearance and what a great example it is for loving our enemies, treating, treating people who have wronged us well. I mean, we probably would have wanted to, uh, maybe, <laughs> besides washing, maybe, maybe uh, sticking or something, you know, poking, prodding or... <laughs> twisting the toes off of our enemies or something, but not washing. How humbling uh, that is. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, in in this instance, and, and I mean, Jesus knew the whole time what Judas was going to do. And and throughout, throughout all of it, including in this moment, didn't act in a way towards of sin. In, in any instance, certainly, though, towards towards Judas. Um, one, one aspect in particular I'm struck of in this this aspect of this portion of chapter 13 is Peter. Um, Peter, I think, is very understandable um, here in particular, as he is in, in other instances of, you know, Jesus, why are you washing my feet, right? Understanding, as Greg talked about, the chore this, that was meant for the lowliest of servants, and, it, and it's Jesus, why are you washing my feet? And Jesus' response is, you know, what I'm doing right now, you don't realize, but you're going to later. You'll understand later. And then, so Peter's, no, never, never going to, you're never going to wash my feet. 
then it's, if I don't wash you, you have no place with me. Then, then Peter jumps to the complete other side of, well, don't stop at my feet. Now wash my hands and my head. And then Jesus talks about how um, it's, it's going to be sufficient just for the feet um, to, to be clean there in, in this instance. I think it's just a amazing thing of Jesus preparing them and that here, you know, they don't understand what's happening, what's going on in the moment, They but they will. Um, verse 19, as it talks about, um, when Jesus says, from now on I'm telling you before it happens, that when it does happen, you may believe that I am he. That all these events that they're going to be able to um, see and look back on and have even more belief and more confidence in knowing that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And the example and teachings were absolutely valid and they could live them out themselves. I'd like to read the comments by Charles Erdman in his commentary, The Gospel of John, an exposition, because I think he hits the nail right on the head and gives us a clearer insight into what was taking place. This is what it says. His act was interrupted by a notable dialogue between himself and Peter, which reveals the spiritual significance of the scene. The disciple is hesitating to allow his master to perform for him so menial a service. And even though assured that Jesus has a purpose which Peter will understand afterward, he objects, you shall not wash my feet. Jesus replies, if I wash thee not, you have no part with me, indicating not only a part in the Passover supper, but in the friendship of Jesus and in all that he was that night to impart to his disciples. Peter now turns impulsively to the other extreme and says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus answers, He that is bathed needs not to wash his feet, but he that is clean every bit. It is at once evident that Jesus refers to a spiritual cleansing which he was seeking to effect. He did wash his disciples' feet to give them physical comfort. No servant had appeared as the supper was served to perform that usual necessary task. No one of the disciples, disputing as they were as to relative greatness, dared to see him humble himself as to perform this lowly service. Jesus therefore washed his disciples' feet, but he did more than that. He cleansed their hearts. As the disciples behold his matchless humility, and as he touched their feet, all their envy and bitterness and unkindness and wrath were gone. They were ready then to listen to the marvelous discourses which fell from his lips. He knew that the disciples loved him, but he also recognized their need of having the present state of mind altered. He was aware that the heart of one was filled with deadly enmity. You are clean, but not all for he knew who would betray him. The act was followed by a word of explanation in which Jesus makes plain to his disciples that they should imitate him in loving, lowly service and aim to secure not merely the physical comfort of others, but their moral and spiritual cleansing as well. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. He declares the blessedness of such service, but recalls a prophecy which shows that from such blessedness, one of the number, the traitor, will be excluded. 
The rest, however, will have the dignity of being thus the very representatives not only of their master, but of his father. As we continue in our study of the Last Supper, the Passover, we find the next thing that happens is Judas is pointed out as being the traitor. If it's found in all of the Gospels, it's found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 21 through 25, Mark chapter 14, verses 18 through 21, Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 23, and John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. Let's read John's account. Anybody ready? I can read John 13, 21 through 38. Through 30. Through 30, thank you. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Even though he had full knowledge of what Judas was doing, we see again, incredibly, Jesus includes Judas. But now the time comes where a very painful expression of Jesus to Judas is made. By the use of the word betray, Jesus revealed to Judas that he had perfect knowledge of the peculiar crime which he was about to commit. To induce repentance, the enormity of the crimes is pointed out in two ways. One, it was an act of one, an act in which no other could be found willing to have a part. And two, it was the act of one whose hand rested on the table, who had been admitted to the closest intercourse fellowship and friendship with Jesus. Obviously, the disciples were amazed at this news and wanted to know who would do such a thing. When they ask, is it I, Lord? The meaning is, surely it is not me. Jesus narrowed down the possibility by saying, it is one of the twelve, he that dips with me in the dish. At such a gathering, there would have been two or three bowls into which they would dip their bread. So it would have been one of those sitting closest to Jesus. John was sitting the closest to the Lord, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Peter encouraged John to find out who it was. 
When John asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus said, It is he for whom I shall dip the sop and give it to him. Jesus then dipped the sop and gave it to Judas. So it went from twelve to three or four to one, Judas. This seems only to have hardened Judas. His question, is it I, wasn't made to repent, but only to continue the deception. Doing that, the language seems to indicate, was in some way the final giving of himself over to Satan. Note now, Judas, Jesus did not command the deed, but since it had already been determined by Judas, Jesus dismissed him, dismissed him with the words, what you do, do quickly. Judas had refused all appeals. It was time to do what he had decided he was going to do. I think it's important that we understand that Jesus was following the path that he had come to follow, that it was why he came to earth. But Judas did not have to do what he did. Don't make the mistake of apologizing for Judas. He had a choice, and he made it. Yeah, I agree. What you do, do quickly sounds a lot to me like, let's get this over with. Let's just, let's just have this out. When it says, and it was night, I always read into that, uh, the heart, the, figuratively speaking, in the heart of Judas, it was night. It was a really dark time. In Before Jesus began to wash his feet, it says in verse 2, uh, Satan or the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas uh, to betray him. Now it says, I think it, it shows a progression uh, um, that Satan, in verse 27, now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So initially, Satan kind of plants this thought in his heart, and this, now Satan is given full access. Like this, this has become the dwelling place of Satan. Um, so it's really dark or dark time for him. Personally, I've always struggled with this scripture at how the disciples could have missed this. It just doesn't make any sense to me that John would ask, who is it, Lord? And then Jesus gives him like this special code, you know, this sign. Let me, let me just show you. It's the one that I give the bread to. And then he gave the bread to Judas. I'm like, what, what do you need, a neon sign? And it's not explained really as to how they missed it, except that they had other, you know, like what you do, do quickly. Oh, maybe he meant this by that. Maybe he meant that. And to me, it just points to perhaps, you know, the Lord kind of darkening their understanding. Because if he really reveals the identity and just exposes Judas in that instance, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to apprehend him. Right? They're not going to let this happen. And Jesus knows this has to happen. It will go on in John's account. And it also is found in the synoptics. But Jesus warns the disciples. It's found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 35. Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 31. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 38, and John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. I'll go ahead and read John's account. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, 
Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow until you have denied me three times. You know, we're not going to take the time to, to read all of these accounts together, but we certainly encourage you to do so at home or when, when you have an opportunity to do so. But it seems that the order of these warnings would have probably been John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38 first, followed by Luke, of which Matthew and Mark are parallel accounts. If this is so, it would make two distinct predictions of Peter's denial and two distinct protests from him. It seems likely to me. These warnings were given to help prepare them for what was about to happen. The hour of the arrest was nigh. They would not be able to stand before it. They would flee. But these warnings would also help them recover from their failure. Jesus predicted not only their failure, but his return and their repentance and recovery. It seems probable as well that there were two warnings, as I have stated. One delivered in the upper room before the statements of John 14, and the other delivered as they were preparing to leave the room. It's interesting that in Luke's account, we have the additional information that the devil was focusing his attack on Peter, attempting to sift him, separate the good from the bad. But even as his hour was drawing near, Jesus was not deserting Peter to battle Satan alone. Jesus said he was praying for Peter. You know, earlier in Jesus' ministry, he had made a similar statement, where I am going you cannot follow. And the leaders of the Jews mocked him at that time. And so, where does he intend to go? Does he intend to go among the Greeks, you know, among the dispersion? And so, uh, here he says the same thing to his disciples, but he also adds, even though you cannot follow me now, you shall follow me afterward, uh, which basically means uh, an acknowledgement of their death, and one day you will come where I am going. We know that Jesus spent uh, three days in paradise, and uh, so he's essentially uh, promising that they will be with him. And in, in the famous uh, prayer in John 17, that is one of the things, verse 24, that Jesus says to the Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, 
that they may behold my glory. As as uh, a little awkward or uncomfortable as it may be to to listen to Jesus praying that we, we would die, he's really praying that we would we would be with him. And isn't that what all of us ultimately want? Aren't we ready to go, to, to pass from this life, to be with Jesus? It, it, he, I'm so thankful that he just gives us this new way, this new outlook on, on death. It's not dark and cold and and uh, and uh, sorrowful. It is it is being with Jesus. Yeah, and in verse thirty four and thirty five, in particular, of the the love that we are to have, and certainly um, that they were to have as well for each other. Not just to love one another and stop there, but to love one another um, as He has loved them, as, as Christ has loved them. Um, to to try and and do that, to live up to that standard as well. And when that is done, what's going to happen is, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Um, certainly get the idea from these verses for the song, they will know you are Christians by, by our, they will know we are Christians by our love, if I said that right. Um, and, and certainly something to, to make sure we're doing, that we're loving as Christ has loved. It's not just loving to the world's standard, and that's good enough, but doing it as much as Christ as possible and that that's going to be a bright and shining light for other people. The Lord had also predicted persecution and death as the lot of the apostles due to their evangelistic labors for him. But obviously that had not yet come to pass. Now he reminds them that at the time of the fulfillment of those things, it was at hand, it was nearby. Verse 36 of Luke chapter 22 was not a case of the Lord advocating violence in the spread of the kingdom. He was telling them in a dramatic way that things were about to change. They understood his words literally. They declared that they had two swords in the company. We know that Peter would use one in Gethsemane. Jesus did not correct their misunderstanding at that time. It is enough, he said. means that he was dismissing the subject for now. They had misunderstood. Two swords would not have been enough to defend them against those sent by the high priest if it was a question of physical force. Indeed, with Jesus, no force would have been necessary. He could have stopped it all at any time. He could correct their misunderstanding, and he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. That brings this particular lesson to a close. We appreciate each and every one of you who has listened, and we invite you to invite your friends. Tell them about the podcast as we continue our study of the life of Christ. Until next time, thanks for listening.